we're going to talk about Revelation. So get your tinfoil hats out and your apocalyptic charts. Um, I would say get your Bible out if you have your Bible or your Bible on the phone because we are going to walk through a little bit. There are Bibles in the pews and they're ESV. You don't even have to use your phone. Revelation. I'm going to open my Bible too. So people, Christians, view Revelation in all sorts of different ways. A lot of people think that Revelation is just all symbolic. A lot of people think that Revelation is just this coded, cryptic language for things that have already happened. A lot of people, and this is the the one that's really gotten the imagination of American evangelicals, think left behind, think that Revelation is all kind of like secret videotapes from the future, and you can see what's going to happen if you read the things right and do the charts right. I want to make a case for you. And if, as I make this case in the middle of it or at the end of it, you think, man, he was such a reasonable young man. This is a terrible idea. Don't worry about it, because the point at the end is going to be the same either way. But I'm going to make a case for you. So what I want to convince you of, think about Old Testament figures like Joseph, David, Moses. You know, we talk all the time in Bible studies and in sermons about how these figures are historical figures, and God uses them in the life of Israel, right? They're historical figures, but they're also figures who are meant to point us towards Christ and to help us to understand who Jesus is going to be when he comes. Revelation does something that's very similar. It gives us this sort of throne room of God perspective on things that have happened in history, things that happened after Jesus' resurrection, things that happened in the early life of the church, but it uses that heavenly perspective, that throne room perspective on those historical events to point us toward what's also to come. So these things, what I'm saying is that these things that we're going to read in Revelation are things that have happened. And John has gotten a vision into what those things look like from the throne room of God, how God sees them, how the heavenly host sees them. But those things that have happened are also meant to be windows for us to see into what's happening in the future. So, those things in mind. Let's walk through this idea a little bit. Remember, I'm, I'm telling us we're going to look for historical things. So chapter 4, I'm going to start us back in chapter 4. John sees almost like through a door into the heavenly places, into the throne room, and it's terrifying. There's a throne of gemstones, there's a gigantic rainbow, 24 thrones with elders on them, and we're not even sure who the elders are. There's thunder, there's lightning. There are these four creatures that the Bible says are full of eyes in front and behind. Here's how I think of those things. If you've ever seen a stalk of Brussels sprouts, you can Google that. You have permission to look up one thing, a stalk of Brussels sprouts. But think of that being full of eyeballs instead of Brussels sprouts, but also with animal faces and six wings, and they're singing hymns. So the whole vision is terrifying and bizarre Hard to imagine, even harder to understand, and it makes very little sense. But I will show you one thing in this chapter that does make a lot of sense and that is easy to understand. Scary Brussels sprouts flying creatures, elders, but you know who's not in the throne room of God in chapter 4? Humans. There are no humans there. And that actually makes sense. Because if you've actually followed the history of humanity up to this point, you know why. It's because humans are sinners. And the throne room of God is where the presence of God is, and God is holy. And because humans are sinners, they are not worthy to go before God. It's why Adam and Eve got cast out of the Garden of Eden. 
It's why there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. It's why there's no one in this throne room of God in chapter 4. But at the same time, that's the reason that we have this book. Because this whole story, this whole Bible, is the story of God working in history to undo that separation. Because that separation isn't good. And so you can imagine this whole host of heaven that's in this throne room, you can imagine how throughout all of human history, they've been watching this whole story play out, this whole story in the Bible, all the way through Genesis with the patriarchs, Israel and Egypt, Israel coming out of Egypt, Israel in the promised land, Israel in exile. They've been watching all of this happen, all of this unfold. And then imagine that now they've gotten to the culmination of those things. Because they've been watching this story all the way to the birth of Jesus. All the way through his life and his ministry and even his death and even his resurrection. And so now imagine that you're these creatures in chapter 4, right at the culmination of all of history. Right when everything is about to be completely put back together. Right when the last scene is about to unfold that's going to make the whole thing make sense. And then imagine like a movie when the Wi-Fi stops or the DVD skips because there's a scratch, where right before that scene happens, everything pauses and you don't get to see how it ends. That's how chapter 4 ends. Because there's one scroll that's left to be opened. And the one who is seated on the throne, he's holding it. But there's a problem. There's no one who is able to take that scroll and to open it to reveal the last scene, the scene that's going to make the whole thing make sense. There's even an angel who, who sings, is anyone worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? And there's no one. And John weeps because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. But then chapter 5 comes. There is one who is worthy. The lamb shows up. The lamb standing as though he has been slain. And he goes and he takes the scroll. And now you know that this is important because as soon as he touches the scroll, the flying Brussels sprouts eyeball creatures and the elders start singing a different song. Now they sing about ransomed people of God from every tribe and language and people and nation being formed into a new kingdom to reign. So I said we're looking for historical moments, moments in history. Which one is this? It's the ascension. Who is this lamb if it's not Jesus? Who else is going to come into the throne room of God and be worthy of praise if it isn't God himself? This is a heavenly vision of the moment of the ascension. Well, then you get chapter 6. What in the world is this business of seven spirits of God, seven seals that have to be opened? Well, what happens in history 10 days after the ascension? If the ascension happens in Acts 1, what happens in Acts 2? It's Pentecost, when the Spirit is poured out. Did you know that Pentecost was a festival? This is actually, God's so smart, he did this on purpose. It's not just a harvest festival, it's the first fruits festival, which means that Pentecost is a beginning. Part of this beginning, the destructive, kind of scary-looking things that you see in chapter 6, are the Spirit being poured out to begin the process of bringing the old arrangement to its end? 
And that's going to culminate in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. But the other part is that the Spirit is bringing in the first fruits of the Lord's harvest. Think about the Spirit's work in Acts 2. He doesn't just come to make everyone speak word languages and understand languages they don't know. He comes to actually do something in their hearts. New Testament talks over and over again about what it is that the Spirit does. He joins us to Christ. The Spirit unites us with Jesus. That's what he does. Joins us to Christ, unites us with him, so that the things that belong to Jesus belong to us. That's what it means for the Spirit here to bring in this harvest, even the first fruits of this harvest. So if chapter 6 then, well first, if chapter 4, chapter 5 is the ascension, Chapter 6 is the beginning of this pouring out of the Spirit who's going to bring in the first of this harvest of God's people, who's going to join them to this ascended Christ, this Lamb who is in the throne room. Who do you think is going to show up in chapter 7? What's missing that's going to be filled in? People. The people from every tribe and tongue and nation are going to be present because they've been joined to this Lamb who has come into the throne room of God. And how did they get there? The end of chapter 7 tells us that their shepherd brought them there. If you're like me, you tend to think of Jesus the good shepherd, kind of like this picture behind me, where he's gently carrying the lost sheep, the shepherd who, who sheep hear his voice, who fends off the robbers. You see this picture of a shepherd who matches the description that David gives us in Psalm 23 leads us to green pastures, to clean waters, comforts us with his rod and with his staff. And all of that is good and right. But Revelation 7 blows up that picture into something that's even bigger. He's a shepherd who has been leading his people, leading his sheep through all of history. He's the shepherd who reached down into Egypt and led his people out by the hand. He's the pillar of fire and cloud that led them through the wilderness. It's the shepherd who has been leading his people to this place for all of history. And you can see in him all that David was looking for in Psalm 23. A shepherd who passes through the valley of the shadow of death for his sheep, even through death itself. A shepherd who gives his own life for his sheep so that he could walk all of those who belong to him through that same darkness, so they could exchange their sheep pens for the throne room of God. That's a huge picture. And then it becomes even bigger when you remember that this picture in chapter 7 is the first fruits and not the end. That this innumerable multitude that we read about in Revelation 7 is the beginning, a glimpse of what's to come, just a foretaste of the full harvest. And who else gets included in that full harvest if it's not us? All of God's people. Joined to Christ by the Spirit, following the shepherd who leads us, who protects us, all the way to the throne room of our God. To streams of living water, as it says. Even to a table, a feast that's been prepared to us or for us by our Lord. That is a remarkably glorious picture. So glorious that you can't get your head around it. 
But at the same time, you might very well say, well, that's great, but what about now? Like, think about David when he writes Psalm 23. David wasn't really looking forward to some dramatic end of history when he wrote it. I don't even know if he had a glimpse of that when he wrote it. But still, even in his present, he was able to say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And to mean it. Even in the middle of a very muddled and imperfect life. So if you're like me, whether you can cling, like you can see that glorious picture, whether you can cling to it or not, you might want so badly to be able to say that right now. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want and actually mean it and not want anything else. To be able to say he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That big and glorious picture is a wonderful thing, but at the same time, there are a lot of times when it feels like we haven't seen green pastures or streams in a long time. Or like if we have seen water, it was up to our neck or over our neck, and we were just trying to get out of it. Or David talks about you lead me along these paths of righteousness, and you might hear path of righteousness and think, that's an unmarked trail and I keep losing it. Or maybe that darkness of the valley of the shadow of death feels like something that is consuming and you don't have a way out of it. Maybe you actually have everything and you can't find anything else that would make you any better and you still can't say, I shall not want. If you do find yourself in any of those places, I pray that from this whole kind of story we laid out that you can hold on to one thing. If that's your shepherd, and if the story of this shepherd is one who leads his people by the hand all the way from the beginning to the end, all the way even here to the throne room, and if it's true that this shepherd, like he says in John, isn't going to lose anyone from his hand, no one's going to snatch any of his sheep from his hand, if he's going all the way to that end, that end is already determined, it's already known, and it's already promised, he is absolutely with you now. If he has promised to take you all the way to that end, then he is certainly with you now, holding you by the hand whether you can feel him or not with you in the darkness, whether you can see him or not, walking you on that path of righteousness where you know where the path is or not. And that's my only simple point out of this whole wild and crazy picture that we see in Revelation. If that's where your shepherd is taking you, then he is certainly with you now. And he won't fail, and he won't let you go, and you won't be lost. Because if that story at the end is true, then you are safe now. He's a good shepherd. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.